This is iFanboy Booksplode, A Contract with God and Other Tenement Stories, a graphic novel. I'm no millionaire, but I'm not the type to care. Cause I've got a pocket full of dreams. It's my universe, even with an empty purse. Cause I've got a pocket full of dreams. Hello, my fanboy Booksplode. My name is Connor Kilpatrick, and I'm here with Josh Flanagan. Hey there. And Ryan Haupt has wormed his way into the Booksplode. It's my first Booksplode. I'm ready to explode all over everyone. And we are talking about A Contract with God and Other Tenement Stories, a graphic novel by Will Eisner. What the book is called, it might depend on what version you have. But that's, that's the They know what title. we're talking about. It should start with A Contract with God. You can probably yes. go with that. And this book was published in 1978 by the legendary Will Eisner, the man for whom they named the award. Spoilers. Spoilers. Spoilers for this old, old book. I say old, old book that came out after I was born. <laughs> well, what does that say? <laughs> oh, shh. This book is credited with popularizing, not inventing, but popularizing the term graphic novel. That's how Eisner marketed it to publishers. Mm-hmm. His career was all about elevating the medium. Yeah. And it should be known, like, this This was very late in his career. I mean, he yeah. was doing comics in the 30s. Yes. Yeah, he was a veteran. He was already financially well-off like, from all his work, and he owned, he owned some art companies. And this is something he just sort of did in his yeah. later career. It was like, fuck it, I really want to do this. And he wanted to popularize comics. He wanted to make them not seen as a low-brow medium. And so one way he tried to do that was through this book, A Contract with God, Other Tenement Stories. Now it's, it's a perennial. It's in the, it's in the canon, the comic book canon. And I had never read it. Never, huh? Never read it. Does your version have the Denny O'Neill introduction? Mm, does it? Mine did, because as established, Josh and I read the same version. I bring it up because... No, well, Eisner wrote an introduction in my volume. Yeah, it's a preface, actually, here. Uh, anyway... A preface. He wrote several prefaces. Yes, he did. That was a thing. This has every preface from every version. Okay. So I've got all the prefaces. Same for mine. Mine goes up to March 2000 when this version was published. All the prefaces. I really enjoyed this preface, and I and I and what, what I, I mean that to say that it, it put me in mind in, a, in a, I thought a really helpful frame of mind to read it. And he actually says, which I think is really fascinating, is that the first time he read it, it didn't really connect with him. And, mm-hmm. and he is a learned man of letters. You read this like he's he Denny writes O'Neil. beautifully. Yeah, Denny O'Neill, and he spoke about it in such a way that really actually really affected how I thought about it is he said, you know, when I first read it, I just, I didn't get it. It didn't really make sense to me. He said, but, you know, later I had a different feeling about it. And he said that, you know, the idea is that a critic can only judge the intention of the artist. And if they think that artist succeeded in their goal. And I was like, that is fascinating. And that stuck with me in the way that we would talk about it. But as I read this, I kept this in mind. And the reason that I I bring it up is that when I first read this, you know, probably back in 2000, Mm -hmm. It didn't make a huge impact on me. I don't think that I was in a place to appreciate or understand it in the way that I would later. And so when we reapproached it, I was really looking forward to, but also apprehensive. I was like, I hope I get more out of it than I did the last time. You know, and we were talking before, I'm 23, 24. You were not in the right headspace for that. Not even that, but like when I, when I read it now, I could give this an A plus just based on hand lettering. I mean, like, there is a level of craft that I did not understand at that point that this time, you know, 
every page had a thing on it where I was like, look at this master. Yeah. You should have an award named after you. Yeah. And so that on top of, you know, the social history that he'd done in here, you know, I know a lot more about the world and how it used to be now than I did then. And all of that contributed to to a whole different experience for me this time. And, and I really appreciated that. Well, it's interesting, you know, Eisner is on the Mount Rushmore of comics. And he's yeah. on there having done very little mainstream superhero work. You know, the stuff that most people in comics are known for. He did The Spirit. That was like his main thing he was known for before this book. But he worked early in the golden age of comics and he didn't do Marvel and DC. He didn't do those kind of books. And so he exists almost in his like removed, exalted place because he didn't do the Fantastic Four. But as a result, he doesn't really get mentioned in the same right. breath. But as a result, my point is I haven't read a lot of stuff from him. Sure. Because yeah, yeah. we're so we're so busy doing that other stuff. You know, the spirit, I've read a little bit here and there, but for the most part, I know of Will Eisner through reputation and through a drawing here or a drawing there and from his hand-lettered name. Yeah. Right? And that's it. So this is one of the first full-length things of his I've ever read. And I'm glad we did this because that's a huge hole I shouldn't have in my comic reading life. Same. It's sort of like watching The Godfather having grown up, you know, post that era where it's like, oh, everything is coming from this, in a sense. You know, like there, there's right. so much that... It, you just if you've read a lot of comics, you've absorbed a lot of what Will Eisner contributed to the comics landscape, to the comics language of storytelling. And then when you go back and read this, you're like, oh, well, this is clearly like this was the guy who did it. This is where it originated. Let's jump in. This is what makes it so interesting. The book itself. It's four short stories, all set in and around 55 Dropsy Avenue of the Bronx, which is a fake address of a fake street in the Bronx, based on the the neighborhood that Eisner grew up in. As almost all these gods of the uh, golden age of comics grew up in the Bronx or in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And if I may use this brief moment to Robert Moses this place up, <laughs> there was a really thriving, seriously, there was a yep. really thriving middle class Jewish neighborhood there. And there's tenements in poorer areas, but there was a real community and, and a huge place where people who had moved out from the slums of lower Manhattan and sort of moved up to these more working class neighborhoods in the Bronx. And, and when yeah. Robert Moses put in the freeway system, he basically demolished all of it. So it doesn't exist now. So these areas that you're talking about are not there, or at least in any form like they used to be. There's still a lot of tenements all over the yeah, place. But, I grew, I, but, the, the building I lived in in Brooklyn for 10 years it was a tenement at one point. No, I know that. But what I'm saying is it would have been more like it was a huge like connected Jewish neighborhood. And then he bisected yeah. a lot of it. He bulldozed a ton of it. You know, he basically just cut it up into pieces. When I see you mean Robert Moses. But that's important for this history of the, like, it is this place that doesn't exist. You know, who knows what it would look like today? Would it be like Williamsburg or like other right. you know, more established ethnic communities if that hadn't happened but that gave me a context like oh wow this is not only a world that doesn't exist just because time moved on but like it's been wiped off the earth right which is really interesting and so all these stories take place about the characters living in this building or around this building the first one being a, a contract with god that's the main lead story it's such an interesting tone because the stories themselves are all pretty bleak mm -hmm. in one way or another but they're told with almost a vaudevillian I, you know, there's a lot of humor or absurdity in these bleak stories. And honestly, if you were a poor family living in a tenement in the Bronx, your life was probably pretty bleak. And you had to look at things with a vaudevillian eye. But there's a lot of tonal whiplash here. Yes. Not in a bad way, because, you know, life is like that. That feels like very sort of, I hate to, you know, traditional Jewish humor in yeah. that, like, shit's really bad. What are you going to do? 
You know, right. and th- there's a lot of that. All the comedians that came out of that era, yeah. you know, were like that. And that's bit. what the dialogue in this sounds like, by the way. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Like I think another comparison that is obvious but important to note would be something like Fiddler on the Roof, right? Like, yeah. it's it's very much the story of, you know, Jewish families and the struggles they're up against. But how do they find humor? How do they smile? How do they still talk to God in a loving and respectful way within that? Con- it's, re- it's, yeah, fascinating framing. Yeah, so, you know, the first story is about a man who whose daughter dies, and he's mad with God because they had a contract. And what that means is when he was a kid, yep. he sort of made up a contract with God, and he said it out loud, and he's like, I'm going to do the right thing, and you take care of me. And and then so when his daughter dies, he, he basically, you know, bellows up to the heavens, like, you broke this contract. And he turns into kind of a kind of asshole. He makes a ton of money. He buys yep. this building. He becomes a slumlord for a while. Yep. And then things change. Yeah. And I, I feel like that story is so essential to Judaism. I'm obviously not Jewish, but I've been to temple and I've been to my friend's bar about mitzvahs and all this other stuff. And I feel like the idea of like God is someone that you have a set, an agreement with. And yes, as long as you is. both honor and your end of the bargain, things will work out. And mm-hmm. when God fails to honor his end of the bargain, then this guy gets really upset about it and changes his entire life based on it. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. And then the second story is about the alleyway singers. These, you know, in the, in the depression, these guys who could sing would go into the alleys, the street singers, uh, between the buildings, and they would they would sing, and people would toss them pennies, and that's how they would make some money to eat. And so this guy gets picked up by uh, an over the hill opera singer who decides he's got a great voice, and I'm going to manage you, and also we're going to have sex, and it's going to get me back to the top. And then that doesn't go quite the way she thinks it's going to go. The third story was they just got progressively rougher. Was about it's the super. Oh, superintendent yeah. of the building who is the landlord's man on the on the ground he's the guy that runs the building keeps it in supposedly working order and collects the rent and all that stuff uh he's a horrible that he's necessarily horrible he comes off that way and he's well crap. he's a little racist he's a little anti-semitic this is a german guy in 1930 something yeah he's not great right but it does flip around completely in a way that is totally unexpected and he gets his life turned upside down in a horrible way and then the final story is called Crucaline, which is about these, I did, which I didn't know anything about, with these farms. When you couldn't afford to go to the Catskills, you know, that was a, it was a major uh, summertime of activity. I was going to ask about this one because I had to, like, I was looking up words a lot in this one because this is the one where I was like, I don't know what this term means. So you had all those being... Jewish resorts in the Catskills that families would go to in the summertime, you know, most famously portrayed in Dirty Dancing or Mrs. Maisel. But if you couldn't afford those, you went to these farms in the same area where the farmers would open up their land and they had built these sort of crude activities you know, in the barns and stuff. But the families had to cook and you sort of slept in these, you know, in the barns or in these you know, rooms with lots of beds. It was like the poor man's resort. Like family hostels. But I, mean, I yeah. imagine it was also a way to like get out of the city when it was really Well, that was the whole point was to get the kids yeah. out of the city in the summertime. And so this is a series of characters who go to this one resort. Or this one crookaline place. Um, lots of things happen. Some of them Fagel's good, some of them terrible. And so that's sort of the four stories. But the thing that really struck me about reading this was that, A, it's not told in a traditional comic book way. There's some no. pages that are recognizably comic book style in the panels and panel-to-panel storytelling. But a lot of it's just sort of single images or two images or three images on a page. Almost newspaper cartoon style. Right. What I loved about this was you could see the ink on the page. Uh-huh. You know, you could almost imagine him dipping the pen in the, in the inkwell and scratching the pages together. And I say scratching in the best possible way. And it's printed on, I mean, I don't know about your copy, Connor, but this is printed on, you know, not quite white, at least not anymore, you know, uncoated <laughs> kind of rougher paper. Yeah. 
which is indicative of of a newspaper sort of when you touch it and it works so like you can run you can kind of run your fingers over it and yes it, it a little bit make would make you feel like this is a bit of the drawing but it's pretty easy to open this up and again after talking about comics you know for 17 years now not counting when we wrote about him at first you know every page i open up to has something where you know it, even and I'm, i wasn't kidding about the lettering by the way like i'm mm-hmm. not exaggerating yeah no. the lettering in this is beautiful but so even we take that aside if i don't have anything to look at at least i have the lettering but pages i don't know for me it's 10 and 11 and it's from hirsch Yep. walking up to his house and it's the rain is just drenching everything and i don't know if i've ever seen better drenching rain drawn this way right. you know the whole thing is you know if somebody did this in a comic book today that came out from image or marvel you'd be like wow this art's amazing and look how minimalist it is i assume you look at yeah. the page where it says after all this was the day for Hirsch buried rachel yes. his daughter look how tactile that is but look how it's done such such a minimalist style like yep. the bricks are scribbles Mm-hmm. The rain in the background is just lines, and you can see where they overlap, where he he didn't go all the way down, and then yeah. the water on the ground. A lot of it is just is just negative space. Yep, it's so evocative of being caught out in a major drenching rainstorm in the city, yeah. and everything is flooding, and you're just soaked. It's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And so you know, there's that stuff all through it. You know how he's decided to light a scene. It's really that beautiful bit of cartooning where you have something that looks really beautiful and composed and then you unfocus your eyes and like it's so loose yeah. it's so natural and loose and and it's comprised of all these little bits that don't look like they would add up to the final bit you know who everybody is and what they're thinking and where they're coming from pretty much from looking at them you know it's cartoony caricature it's not super subtle there's, there's nothing subtle about no it's it. it's yeah it's vaudeville Ugh, it's just like it's it's all alive and he really drew it in a way like so this is 78 he, you know let's say there he's 40 years out of the slums 30 right you know whatever and you know it's all very alive you know he's i don't know if you can tell he's clearly been there but it, it doesn't look like so, you know he didn't go do research on what this looked like it, and it feels lived in for sure oh, it feels like it's from deep in his memory yeah yeah i mean he's, he's he basically was 60 years old when he did this which is crazy. That's impressive. And, you know, when I read it, I thought, you know, I said, like, I know a lot more than I used to. But my wife's dad, he went and worked in the Catskills in the summer, you know, right. or great uncle and therefore grandfather. You know, like, they lived in a tenement in Astoria where they slept, you know, 12 of them in an apartment. It's not so far away. Like, I think if you read it now, you're like, oof, how did anybody, you know, and it, it's, you know, generation and a half back. No, it's the 30s. It's not that. It's yeah. not like it's not like 1830. No. And I think that's what's interesting about it is as, as a piece of historical reportage too. Mm-hmm. You said earlier, I think Josh, you got a real sense of these people's lives in various ways. You know, you see their jobs, and a lot of them working in the garment factories, and you know, trying desperately to move up, or just being lonely in your tenement, and just desperate to find any kind of human connection. And as a look into the life in this block or on this street was really. If this is all from his memory, which is you know, supposedly you know all just his sort of exaggerated memory of living in the Bronx yeah. at the time, this and is... the stories are are tall tales to a certain yeah. extent. Like they're, they're like fables. They're just real enough, but yeah. you know they're embellished. But it's not that part that we're talking about in terms of realism. I think no, it's the, it's the essence of all of those things. But and the, it's so, the details too. You know, it's like yeah. what were they wearing? What were they eating? What jobs did they have? What were their dreams? What were their hopes? 
what are their apartments yeah. the look slang, like. Yeah. The way that husbands and wives talk to each other, the way they talk about the obvious affairs that are happening, the way they talk about the kids and what to do with them. Like it all felt, yeah, it was just so lived in and real. The American story is this idea of upward mobility. And so that's sort of suffused in this whole thing. How are we, you know, how are we going to move ahead? And some people are like, why aren't you working harder? You know, and other people are trying to figure out a way to marry themselves out of it. Mm. And, right. but there's also sort of this little bit of like, oh, this isn't going to work. You know, like for most people. It kind of showed that like that American myth of upward mobility, like it came with a higher cost than I think we often talk about. Yes. Right. Yeah. And how that sort of struggle, like there's not trying to think if there's any good guys in here you know what i mean like everybody is sort of you know if if not it's all very of, shades like, of gray awful very much there's not like a hero there's not you know oh this person there's not, there's not a hero but there's certainly people like the opera singer she's fine you know she kind sees of, this guy with at the talent same time, she's she, yeah but she's also still using it to try to get part of her Sure. Youth back, you know, yeah. and, and there's not altruism necessarily. You know, even no. even Frim, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, he... Oh, no, he turns into a monster. He does turn into a monster, and then he kind of turns around and... For good reason, but he does. Sure. And, you know, but and then he kind of does the right thing, and he, he kind of has a... He, he <laughs> I love that part of the story where he goes to the Council of Rabbis or whoever they are, and he's like, mm-hmm. I want you to write this up. You know how to talk to God better than anybody, so you do it. And then he leaves, and they're all, I mean, you can hear the voices, and, and maybe they're sort of cartoonish voices, but it's like, we should not do this. Are you saying a man could not also be? And they're like, yes, and they consider it, and they do it, and they write it up, because he, they can't see a way that it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I really liked that. I mean, you say there aren't any really heroes. In the fourth story, Kukuline, a lot happens, and it, it is very dirty dancing, which is, It gets you know, dark fast, though. It gets yep. dark fast, but it kind of hit me at the end of the story, and I don't know if you guys had this same thought. Like, Willie's supposed to be him, right? Like, he's... Willie is Will Probably. Eisner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't catch that, but I don't think you're wrong. It literally hit me on the last page when his mom is calling out... My, my page, last page being different than Connor's, yep. when his mom is calling out to him when he's looking sort of sad and thoughtful out on the fire escape, and she's saying, like, hey, Willie, you know, summer's over, what are you going to do now? And he's, like, just kind of looking bummed about the world and the experience he had at the Cookaline over the summer. And I'm like, holy shit, this is him. That's Will Eisner in that drawing. Like he's telling this story about himself. That's excellent. The yeah. thing is, I think a lot of the stories are, I don't know, like I said, they're true, but also overwrought. But if I think about the facts of any of them, they're, I mean, they feel like tall tales. It's Paul Bunyan, you know, it's, yeah. It's, but if you think about what the facts are like, so this guy goes out and he's going to meet a woman so he's acting like he's rich. And there's a woman who's trying to meet a man, so she's acting like a rich. And they end up together, and then some violent shit happens to her. And I'm like, all of this stuff very likely could have happened. It feels far-fetched, but it's not. Or the story of the superintendent, you know, who gets... Yep. It's, that's like the set. Honey-trapped. Yeah. Uh, by a kid, but she's like 10. So yeah. it's even, like, worse. You know, like, he made that little girl evil. Yeah. They're not so far afield. Like, when you read it, it's like, well, those are a little fantastic. And then you go, actually... You know, it's crazy shit happens in the city. I think we also have, we as a people have probably rose-colored glasses about how civilized we are, you know, at this very moment. Sure. But go back even into the 30s when things were bleak and there was no food and jobs and things, and things get dark real quick in terms yes. of what you'll do for money or what you'll do for anything. So, yeah, I mean, I had no trouble believing elements of truth in all of these stories. Sure. Even if they are presented in a way that's slightly fantastical, yeah. not fantastic. There might have been stories that were told around the neighborhood that may or may right. not have been true. And you just shove them all together in, in this thing for this sort of 
harsh, truthful look at human nature right. yeah. at that time. Well, and I think a theme that's been touched on off and on in our conversation is what desperation can drive people to. Mm-hmm. And like desperation is such a powerful force in these stories in making people drive you do, to do anything. Yeah, it makes it, people do things they know are stupid and they know is going to is going to come back to bite them, but they can't help it because they're desperate and they're hungry and they want more than what life has given them thus far. And so they push it and they push it to the limit and sometimes when you push it to the limit it breaks and things go bad and you have to deal with those consequences. Let's talk for a bit about the form. Mm-hmm. Because this is he said, you know, we're it's the first graphic novel or whichever it was. We're talking about 1978. You know, outside of the comics with an X, mm-hmm. you know, and some stuff towards, uh, you know, adult mature stuff. And I don't even know when heavy metal came out, but the content is per- is adult. There's there's sex and there's nudity in it. And it's funny because it's not the the nudity and sex in it is not particularly sexy. It's not. No, it's very matter I mean, of fact. A, it's, it's it is. And it's very sort of realistic. Like bodies are not perfect. They are. They're know, human, cartoonishly realistic. How's yeah. that? And and I just think this must have been so unheard of at the time. You know that that a, that a comic well, it was definitely Crumb and people like that doing things like this. But, prob- yeah. but in a mainstream sense, yes, for sure. But yeah, but like it's sort of a straightforward take. You know, like Crumb is Crumb, and you know that's comics. That's part of that sort of underground comics thing, and it, and it kind of existed there. But sort of this kind of take on stuff, I don't know where else you would have seen this. You know, there wasn't going to be a movie necessarily, you know, with, with this kind of thing. Certainly not on TV. Maybe in, maybe there were probably books or things like that, but the sort of visual depiction of it. And putting in a comic, I mean, look at, look at comics in 1978. It's, it's, Certainly. it's crazy. Certainly, comics, yeah. You know, it brings to mind, the, the, it comes on the heels of, well, the, the very last gasp of sort of the the movie revolution that it's actually about to die because it's 78 because of star Wars and jaws and things. I think it had just died. Yeah. So the more realistic, grittier films that were coming out in the sixties and early seventies, like Ryan said, like feels like the Godfather, Bonnie and Clyde things, you know, dog day afternoon. This yeah. felt, you know, it's like a very yeah. like sweaty Sidney Lumet kind of film. This is a comic, is yeah. a comic book version of, of, you know, what Scorsese did as mean streets. Yeah, I just I think of the seventies, especially in the like New York, the, the the city as a character stories as like everyone was just sweaty all the time. And this this comic, even though I don't know, there's a drop of sweat actually drawn on any character, it depicts I mean, that. Spend a day in New York City in August, you'd be sweaty too. It's yeah. still a thing. Sweaty and angry. Yeah, it feels like it's from that era. You know, it feels like the yeah. the comic version of those kind of films. You, mean Streets is a great analogy. So yeah, try to sell this to somebody buying Kurt Swan's Superman. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very different. But you're, you're right. I, I just keep looking through it. And Eisner, one of the many things he's famous for is his titles and okay. how he incorporates yes. the titles into the art itself. You know, that was a, the big thing about the spirit was the hand-drawn titles that would be part of the art. And while it's not quite as immersive here as the spirit, it's very much, it's all on the page. It's all hand-drawn. It's all somewhat incorporated into what's going on in the page itself. Which I think is the correct stylistic choice. Yeah. There's not a place for a giant, elegantly rendered, totally detailed title page in this one. But I don't think we have these anymore. Is a cartoonist who does everything. Everything. You know, Very like, little. Like, they used to be able to all, you know, like Terry artists Moore. used to be able to draft 
you know, letters that, you know, every Chris Ware is the closest yeah. guy I can think of to what Will Eisner does, although it's a well, different no, I think, I think Connor makes a good point with Terry Moore. Like, I do think about Terry Moore's style in terms of inserting blocks of text in ways that in if anyone else was doing it, it would be a brick wall that you were hitting while reading. But when... And also, the, a, I think just the stylistically in terms of you're, the... You're actually not wrong. The scratchiness of the black and white mm-hmm. art on the page is very similar, right. even, even if their actual styles are not the same. No, but, you know, like, visually... And sort of storytelling wise, there's definitely connections. Yeah. Wish I had a chance to ask him about that or wish I'd known that at the time. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's very few. I mean, like Cliff Chang's doing that in that Catwoman book where he's doing everything, but. Lonely City. But does he hand letter it? No, but he's doing the lettering. He's doing right. all the stuff. That's what I mean. Like this yeah. stuff is hand lettered. They had to learn to do that. Right. You had to be able to do all that stuff back then. Right. It's such a beautiful art. And all, almost all these guys were fine artists who did comics because again they were jewish and what else were they going to do they weren't going to get hired to do advertising but a lot of them i mean you know kirby's is one of those where he he just started doing it yeah and sure he had to but get really eisner good wasn't. and I, I don't yeah. i don't know what eisner's deal was like i don't know that he went to art school or jesus was there even art school i don't know where he developed these skills but the point is like he developed them and you don't have to anymore and so you know again other, so when you do it when you see this now it's a specialty thing you know chris ware you know, designs these pages that have the lettering and drafting all over them. You know, to be a mainstream comic book artist, you don't have to do any of that. Mm-hmm. And then you had to. And, you know, there's a handmade aspect of that. Like, God, the lettering through this is gorgeous. It is all changes around in your size and your, I mean, like the, the bolding, but just the way it's all done is so <laughs> analog. Like, it just stands out. I love looking at, at this whole thing and that sort of the complete package of the, of the thing. Eisner was a high school buddies with Bob Kane. Yeah, I was just reading that too. And they both went to the legendary DeWitt Clinton High School, which HBO made a documentary about because tons and tons of people you would know came out of that high school. Yeah. For some reason, like Robert Altman and James Baldwin, you know, to tons and tons of people. Bob Kane and well, Bill Eisner, obviously, too. But they went to school together. Burt Lancaster, Ralph Lauren, Stan Lee with there too. It was a very hotbed for comic books and, and you know, the golden age. Well, it's, it's funny because, you know, only more recently now would we look upon what they did you know, at the time. Those people going to comic books was considered oh, a yeah. complete step down. So. Well, I mean, like the the whole you know Stan Lee is not his given name. He was Stanley Lieber, and he was Stanley was a pen name so that he could go back to real literature at some right. point later in his career. You know, which turns out that he never really wanted to do. Well, his wife was <laughs> he want he wanted to have done it, <laughs> but that is a different show. <laughs> we already did that book split. Yeah, no, this was a joy. I mean, look, it could be a harrowing read, and people should know that. As a read, it's actually quite breezy. It really oh, sure. it, no, it's it, over fast. It's just shy of 200 pages. It's really smooth, easy reading. It's largely pages composed of big panels, you know, not Single too many inches, word yeah. balloons. It reads really well, which is should be no no shock, but, you know, sometimes sometimes you feel like a book like this is going to be a homework book, and this is not a homework book. No, not at all. Yeah, I had no idea what to expect. I mean, this high school man was a hotbed. Bill Finger went there, too. Like, this was... Bill Finger and Bob Kane. What are the odds? Bill Finger, Bob Kane, Stan Lee, Will Eisner. Look at, think about that class. <laughs> what were the cartoons like in that newspaper? Probably bat people and spiritmen. <laughs> yeah. Guys in domino masks and oh boy. Anyway, well, Bob Kane wasn't doing any of the actual. Yeah, work. he was actually he was paying Bill Finger to do it. He just took credit for it and <laughs> he signed his name. The other person in this conversation for whom an award is named after. <laughs> 
the cartooning here, the character work, the expressions, Josh, you said earlier, you, you just... You got a sense of everybody by their faces, their emotions on their faces. How their clothes were drawn. Their body language. Not, oh, yeah. It's all of it. It's a beautiful book. And I love the interstitial panels that are like all ink. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if those they're are the original. Sort of the titled the chapter pages, I guess. Yeah, they're all just for heavily inked. And, you know, this is a masterpiece. Yep. Absolutely. Five stars. <laughs> easily. Easily. I just love that it didn't connect with me that first time. Forever ago when I was a child. And I was really looking forward to connecting with it and hoping that it would and it totally did it met those expectations and you know so many times you go back to something that is considered to be a masterpiece and you know if it doesn't connect with you it's always super disappointing and when it does that moment where you can read something and go oh okay i understand why we're still talking about this 40 years later yeah you know and i i love when you can see something universal and stuff i mean connor you watch a lot of classic movies and stuff so i'm sure that's that's a thing that you're, you're sort of looking for is to be like well what you know, because there's you can enjoy the aesthetic of a given time, or you can try to find the thing that's common. Now, where you say, "Oh, this holds up really well." You know, like I always think of uh, Stanley Kubrick's *The Killing*. You know, mm-hmm. like to me, it's exactly like like Pulp Fiction. It is no less sophisticated or less interesting. You know, and I just think, "Oh, this was modern because that is," and and this this is both modern and of a different time. It's it was done forty four years ago. It was based on something forty years before that. That's awesome. I just love that. That sort of time capsule. It's almost, it's a time machine in a way. Yeah. If, if you've got no idea what life was like in the 30s living in a Bronx tenement, this is a great book to learn, even if it's not exactly a nonfiction work. It's going to give you that feeling, the sense of life there. And well, like this world that is depicted in it, again, like I said, this is 40 years before any of us were born. And he did this from when he was a kid and he did it as an adult. And, you know, 20 years ago, I was on the floor at Comic-Con in San Diego and I was next to the guy. I wasn't mm-hmm. smart enough to know what that meant, other than I knew it was him. Right. I just love that time is is much shorter than you than it you know than it appears to be. Like history is so much shorter than we actually yeah. think because yeah, we totally. only see what's right in front of us. Yeah. And we're we're lucky. We're lucky to get to experience it. Yeah, and we're lucky that we got to be on the tail end of being around the guys who created the industry and created the medium. <laughs> you know, we've interviewed Joe Kubert and Jerry Robinson. Jerry Robinson, and we've Stanley. I mean, interviewed Stanley many times. You were standing next to Isaac. Like, we got to be around physically those people, and people not just us, but anybody who went to conventions or anything. I, I remember seeing J- Jerry Robinson at a con table, you know, within my lifetime, and I was like, that's, I was too scared to talk to him, but I was like, holy shit, that's. I remember, I remember seeing him at cons and no one's talking to him. No one. And it's just like, does anyone realize who that guy is? And the answer is <laughs> usually no. But yeah. We could have talked to him you for want hours. To see the tiny apartment he's living in. Yeah. I'm really glad we did this. This is all Ryan's doing. So Ryan, thank you for suggesting this because I didn't even own this. I bought it for the show and now I have it. So that's great. It's just one of those things you can just pick it up and open a page up and there's something to really examine. Yeah, it's a rich text for sure. The form and the medium and the story too. I appreciate you guys letting me uh, hop on one of these. This was fun. Yeah, it was fun. So we're going to do our, even though we already said it, our ratings on A Contract with God and Other Tenement Stories. Ratings... I said five, so I'm sticking with that. Five all around? Yeah, five. I'd go five and a half if you let me. Well, speaking of sticking with it, I saw in the back, he also did Dropsy Avenue, The Neighborhood, another graphic novel tracing the four centuries of Dropsy Avenue. That's, I'm really curious about that. When did that get made, I wonder? I'm curious. And he also did one about uh, Nazis. And, like I said, I've never really read Eisner, so now I'm curious to see his other works. Or Life Force and Dropsy Avenue, The Neighborhood. You're ready to check out the entire collection. 
So Life Force is in 88. So he was 70 when he did that one. Yeah. I think the character Willie in the last story really Yeah, no, you're right. Was... You're you're right. You're right, Ryan. Is that all you want us to say? No, I was just I was I was doing continued reading while we were chatting and they was reading about how like when he was young he was tall and of sturdy build and like that's Willie, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Willie had quite a time with the Crookaline. Oh, that was what I wanted to ask you guys. I <sighs> After reading this, and there was another book. Oh, Aerosmith. After reading Aerosmith, do you guys want to sleep in a, a hayloft? I know Connor and I suffer from allergies. I definitely allergies, would die if I did that. I think with enough clarity, I could do it, and I think I would enjoy it. I mean, conceptually, yes, but practically, I would. I, I sneeze just reading the page. In comics, every time a dude does it, someone else climbs up there, and they get to have a good time. So, you know. That's true. There's opportunities. <laughs> Frequently, though, like in comics, about half the time, that's a demon or something. Yes. Something I mean, else. also, hay is not soft. You flip a coin? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it might be worse. All right, well, this is a different show. So uh, <laughs> we will be back for the next book's blood, which I, we have talked about, but have not fully nailed down. So we'll let you know when that's, when that's going to be. But as always, you can find our book's blood shows and our sister show, The Talk's Blood Show, where Josh interviews a creator. Well, that's where he interviewed Joe Kubert. You can find all those at ifanboy.com. And those are all unlocked by the patrons at patreon.com slash ifanboy. Thanks to the patrons. We also do our weekly pick of the week show, in which Josh and I and sometimes Ryan talk about the week's comics. We have our special edition shows. We talk about movies and things. So all kinds of things happening at ifanboy.com. Check those shows out there. And until next time, I am Connor. That makes me Josh. And I am the spirit of Ryan. But it's written like it's written on the text of the podcast. So Ooh. it looks like it was built in. Sweet. Oh, I'm no millionaire, but I'm not the type to care. Cause I've got a pocket full of dreams. It's my universe, even with an empty purse. Cause I've got a pocket full of dreams. I would take all the wealth of Wall Street For a road when nature tries And I calculate that I am worth my way In golden rods